The Afterburn Podcast is a proud supporter of Guns Gear Memorial Foundation, helping our veterans and their families when they need it most. To learn more, visit gunsgarin.com slash rain. Want to make a podcast? Let me tell you about Spotify's program for podcasters, and it's called Spotify for Podcasters. I've been using it for over a year now. Couldn't be happier from the switch. You can record wherever you create podcasts, whether it be your phone, computer, and it's easy to upload it and distribute it to everywhere podcasts are heard. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. Best of all, Spotify for Podcasters is completely free. So launch your podcast today. Get started with Spotify for Podcasters. Go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. You're listening to the Afterburn Podcast, episode number 17. Altitude. Altitude. Tower to my stitches. Release you. Runway 4 left. Wind 040 at 5. Clear for takeoff. Sea tide. Altitude is arise. We're clear for takeoff. Clear for the airspace. Fire protector. And we had this narrow single engine airspeed range we could fly at. So I had to trade our altitude in that hover instantly to get to a survivable airspeed with one engine. Because you can't hover this 18,000 pound helicopter at 7,000 feet with one engine. And the, the alternative was to just crash the aircraft straight into the ground and try to cushion it as we do a power-assisted vertical descent. And that didn't seem like a good idea. So the, the other really scary thing was my buddy, one of our PJs, is on the hoist. That's the voice of my guest today, Shiner, who is an HH-60 pilot. He's talking about one of his sorties in Afghanistan. Like all helicopters, in my mind, they're just bullet and RPG magnets. And in that sortie in particular, they were exactly that and took a few rounds into the engine. Not where you want to be in life. He was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross in that sortie. We broke this episode down into two parts because Shiner has two Distinguished Flying Crosses, and we talk about both of those sorties in this series. So before we get rolling in the podcast, a few admin notes. First, if you're enjoying the podcast, I just ask that you uh, please leave me a rating and review over on iTunes. That helps me out and hit the subscribe button. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Hangar 24 Craft Brewing. They have three tap rooms, Redlands, California, Orange County, and then Lake Havasu, Arizona. If you're in the region, I highly encourage you to swing by. This is a beer aviation adventure company. Absolutely love their beer. I love the brand. I love the people. If you live in California, Arizona, you can actually have their beer shipped to you, or you can find it in a store near you. Hangar24CraftBrewing.com. You can use their beer locator to find it near you. I'd also like to thank Wingman Watches for sponsoring this podcast. Again, another company that I just absolutely love, and I love their products. If you're looking to build a custom watch, this is their bread and butter. You can work with their design team to commemorate your journey, your organization, your unit, whatever it might be, through a custom watch that's affordable and is high quality. Swing by wingmanwatch.com and you can use the code RAIN10 to receive a discount on any current watch that's on there, or you can mention my name to receive a discount on your group customization order. 
And one final, I have a note after we recorded the podcast, Shiner called me back and said that he had mentioned the first operation in the first episode you'll hear here shortly was conducted by the 82nd airborne. When in fact, for this sortie that he's talking about, it was 101st airborne. He had flown multiple missions for the 82nd airborne the year prior to that. So I wanted to clarify that. With that being said, let's get into the podcast with Shiner. You go ahead and say something. We'll test your audio. All right. Something. Boom. Nailing it. Again, these get better and better every time I ask someone. So thanks for doing <laughs> that. Well, awesome. Shiner, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Uh, you have quite a journey and some interesting stories, which we're definitely going to dig into. Before we get rolling into the podcast, will you tell me a little bit about who you are, what you're doing today, and how you got there? Yeah. Th- thanks for having me on, Rain. Uh, so Lou Nolte and go by Shiner. I grew up Colorado, kind of on the front range there in Golden, West Denver. Knew I wanted to fly from a young age, and it was really cool at the, the inaugural BIA air show when they opened Denver International when I was a kid. My dad took me there, and I got a ride in the original T-6, and they had to stack two parachutes, and the pilot had to like <laughs> say, yeah, one pilot refused, and the other one's like, yeah, we'll just stack parachutes for him. And we did a barrel roll and it was pretty great. And I was 10 and that just always stuck in my mind. And so I did some research and I applied to all five service academies, including Merchant Marine and a bunch of ROTCs, right? And got into Merchant Marine and accepted that appointment. And then at the last second, got a letter from Air Force Academy saying, hey, you know, drive an hour south from Golden and join our class. So I did that. Yeah, that's awesome. Pretty cool. Yeah, quite a glove save from being around floating around the ocean for <laughs> nine months. I know. Time. I know. Well, supposedly they have uh, Navy pilot slots or Coast Guard that they never fully fill or that they have opportunities. So that was kind of my angle there. But I'm pretty seasick, so it would have been bad. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, it's cool to hear that. You know, I get a mix of people. I think you and I kind of similar in that sense, like, I got an aviation hook pretty early, pretty early on. And then my whole focus was like, I want to go be an Air Force pilot. But there are a lot of people who are just kind of out there floating around. They don't necessarily know they want to go out there and fly. But it sounds like you're the first case where you knew. In high school, I assume you're, everything was kind of geared towards getting into a service academy and getting a pilot slot, right? Yeah, that's right. And I was just fortunate that I had that focus and the knowledge and the support to kind of piece that together. I got my private in high school, so that was pretty cool. I was I got my private pilot right as I kind of got my driver's license, so maybe a little after. But we, I grew up rock climbing and ice climbing. We'd go scout lines in the foothills there and figure out where we wanted to climb with the plane. It was super cool. <laughs> that's awesome, man. Yeah, I actually, I got my pilot's license in high school as well, and I think that's pretty unique. But it's one of those things that it's not a requirement, to have a pilot or, you know, your pilot's license going into the Air Force Academy or ROTC in order to get a pilot slot. But it's definitely one of those things that I think helps. And probably flying around on Colorado, that's some airmanship that you developed at a pretty young age that you can translate, I imagine, into flying HH-60s, which is what you do now, right? Right. And I think that mountain flying, that lower altitude using the winds kind of hooked me and pulled me in towards the low level helo tactical mindset. So I kind of knew that existed going into the Academy and they'll come and land at the Terrazzo, kind of the, the center square there at USAFA. And we'll get to 
talk to those dudes. So I was able to see them as a cadet and be exposed to that. What was the hook that made you go like pursue a career flying HH-60s and doing combat search and rescue? So at UPT, I, so I'd flown private pilot. I'd never been airsick at all. And then in the T6 from like day one, I was super sick and <laughs> I worked super hard to, to cope with it, but I never fully kicked it. And like half my mental energy was devoted to just, uh, keeping my body calm basically as far as air sickness went. And I, I had this hunch that I could do kind of a hard, fun, adventurous tactical job with, with helicopters and maybe not be super sick. And I was right. And I'm super lucky that that opportunity existed. Yeah. Did you know, did you know anything about CSAR or anything like that going through pilot training or did you have any mentors that guided you that? Well, when I was a cadet, uh, Anaconda, so I was the first 9-11, post 9-11 class at USAFA. So 9-11 had just happened. Anaconda just happened. And then the Iraq war, Iraq war kicked off in 03. Uh, Colonel Kim Campbell, I think captain at the time, flew her A-10 back and came and talked to us as cadets. And that was pretty cool. And she was a... Uh, I'm not sure if she was Sandy called at that time, but she was an A-10 pilot and talked about the rescue mission. And then we had some of the McKay Trophy winners from earlier in that war, MH-53 guys from the 20th SOS at Herbie come out and talk to us. And I remember as a cadet at Mitchell Hall, they were hearing them talk at the staff tower and I was just stoked. I thought it was super wild what they were doing and them interacting with the environment with brownouts and the mountains and problem solving and just like getting people out by the skin of their teeth was pretty cool. I just left USAFA as an AOC and that was wild to go back and develop the, the youngsters there and our future leaders. But I would tell them as far as CSAR goes, it's like being on a sports team for your whole life, basically from pararescue to the pilots, to the backenders, to our special mission aviators who are flight engineer gunners. But we, the idea is, like you said, we go to the worst place on earth for the next 15 minutes. And it's probably a setup to try to kill us also. And that's a pretty wild job. Everybody else is leaving that place and we're trying to get there as fast as we can. And we don't know much about it. And we just update our info as we approach it. And from my combat experiences, I think the goal is to have enough game plans and plays in your playbook, you can react and engage and try to get that survivor. And then the goal really is to have the willpower to, to fight and then the ability to survive your mistakes so that you get another chance. So you just make a bunch of mistakes and survive them because <laughs> you're, you have enough talent and enough luck and skill and training, and then you're still alive and you get another chance and you finally pull it off. Well, it's like we can train and we can train and we can train, but the enemy always gets a vote. Right. The plan only survives first contact with the enemy. Tremendous amount of respect for, for guys flying helos. You're flying down low in the dirt. And like you said, you're going to where, especially doing combat search and rescue, you're going where everyone else is trying to leave and you're just hovering target, which we're going to talk about <laughs> some of your stories here in a little bit, which to me are just like amazing. With that, what does a like normal deployment look like for a rescue pilot? Sure. So I think it depends a lot as everything does, right? On like where you're going and what the current operations are. 
back in the surge in Afghanistan, we would have a one to two dwell or a one to one dwell. So you would be deployed four months and you'd be back maybe eight months and then you go back four months. The army was doing a year and a half and we would see the same army troopers on the same deployment after we'd been back home for almost a year and they're still there. So that would humble us when we think we'd have it hard basically. But we deploy, we at that time we'd go to Bagram and then we would pre-position and support different army missions. And what we were doing there was flying Kazavac, casualty evacuation, but we were always holding CSAR, combat search and rescue alert. So like Rain, if you, ha- if you had a sick jet and you had to get out, we were always on call to drop even a Kazavac mission and press straight to go get you in that situation. But flying the Kazavac, we were armed. We had typically dual 50 cals and a formation, so a two ship. And we would have Apache Rescort or Kiowa Rescort. And we would be able to go into, assume a lot of risk, go into hot LZs, troops in contact, to pull folks out of really bad situations that often the dust-off birds couldn't survive that low-energy state in the hover what, since they were unarmed, the Army dust-off Blackhawks. That's what I didn't know. So dust-offs, those are unarmed? Yes. So the dust-off birds traditionally have the red cross on the nose and super brave air crew that just throw abandon to the wind and go in to get dudes unarmed, following, you know, full concepts, Geneva Convention, medical evacuation bird. I did not know that because to me, that's phenomenal. I know it's super awesome. Yeah, there's no insur- it's super brave. Yeah, there's yeah. no insurgents that's playing by the Geneva Convention. Nope. So. <laughs> These guys and gals going out there to do that, like hats off. I, I learned something that's phenomenal. Cause I'm used, you know, my experience again is that one year that I spent with the rescue squadron, it, all the training sorties were go fight your way in, fight your way back out. You were armed. Granted you're still a helicopter, but you had the ability to return fire. And usually you had a tens or something like that. that were providing rescort. Right. What uh man. So with that being said, were you guys integrated with the Army? I would imagine this is kind of like if you're sitting alert, they have Apaches that are sitting alert that you guys are going to launch as a formation and they're going to provide cover for you if you're going somewhere. Right? Occasionally, but we were Air Force Rescue is a pretty cool thing because it's this cohesive team effort that's pretty organic. So we have it's the triad. We have the rescue tanker, the HC-130. And then we have the PJs pair rescue. And then we have the Jolly Air Crew, special mission aviators and pilots. And so we can do our mission self-supporting. And then Afghanistan, in my experience at least, was pretty much a pickup game if we were a formation. We would ask for any attack weapons teams to just join us as we went in for the casualty evacuation pickups. So invariably, there'd be two Apaches or an Apache and a Kiowa as a dual gun team, and we would kind of grab them as we went. And then we would make an effort pre-deployed, pre-positioned with the attack weapons pilots to talk to them about their tactics and our terminology so that we could integrate a little smoother than just having never met each other and shown up. But we typically wouldn't launch together. We would... Uh, pick them up as we roll into the terminal area. I know it depends. Again, we're going to, we're going to dive into two of your sorties here, but on average, were you guys pretty busy or was it just flying or sitting alert or doing Kazavac? Right. So 
right now what deployments look like is we sit alert for CSAR and we'll, we can sit ground alert, airborne alert, push forward um, as required for some of the stories you guys have been talking about on the podcast recently. Uh, but back then uh, we were getting a lot of missions and the guys in the South in Kandahar and then in the West in Bastion, they were getting like 12 missions a day. IED blast troops in contact. And there's, there's some good podcasts on that stuff too, but they would just, you know, go into the zone with repeated uh, under fire actions, pull dudes out, bring them to the medical center and come right back out and super gruesome stuff. Like, people trapped in minefields hovering off kind of the carnage from that is the only hover references they have. And they can't descend below the hoist height. Like they're up at 200 feet, maybe 150 feet, because if they go lower, there's a risk they set off the IEDs with a helicopter. So you've got a PJ on the hoist, putting one foot down on the ground, like bear hugging somebody and bringing them up. Um, And so they were super busy. And then up in Bagram, my experience was that we would have very intense missions that would be usually off of an army operation, but we had less constant missions as far as like every day. But when the army decided to fight force on force, we would be first up because we were armed for that casualty evacuation and we would just get attack weapons to cover us and our second aircraft. And we go in and pull these, these folks out. And it's wild. And I know like for me, it was always, I mean, I think for every aviator, knowing that you guys are out there, if you, if I'm going to have a really bad day, uh, there's going to be brothers in arms that are going to come pick you up. Like is a huge, huge factor of being able to go push forward. I'm just trying to think like, it's wild. My last deployment, it was so it was Operation Hand Resolve, and that was such a new kickoff that we were flying outside of the ranges where like you guys would be able to reach us very quickly. And we actually had a Jordanian go down well inside Syria. And I think that changed a lot of like how the dynamics of places went, but that requires you guys to forward deploy to I would say less than your normal Air Force locations, right? Right. So we are forward of the normal Air Force locations. And Post the the tragedy with the Jordanian pilot, we Air Force Rescue CSAR re-entered the. Uh, we, we were there, but we got a lot closer following that. Makes a big difference. Yeah, for sure. And then we're able to kind of uh, support the intensity of the strikes and be able to react quicker when those are going on when when we integrate. Yeah, no doubt. Well, I'm gonna start digging into a sortie here. So this is March 29th, 2011. And you're awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross. March 29, 2011, uh, you were alerted to an urgent evacuation request for soldiers that were critically wounded by enemy fire. After coordinating uh, helicopter attack helicopters to mitigate the threat in the landing zone and receiving high-risk mission approval from the combined Air Operations Center director, there's occasionally some red tape, but that requires, I mean, a, a few phone calls or SATCOM, I would imagine, to get that approval, right? That's right. Yeah, that's a SATCOM call, usually from our enlisted gunner who is passing flight leads words because flight leads busy integrating with attack weapons. And so they're passing words to the KOC to get that approval or to our operations center locally to then get that approval. Yeah, and the approval there too, it's an acceptable level of risk, right? 
that he's determining and owning, like, is it worth sending this helicopter and these, this crew into harm's way with a chance of not coming back? That's right. And with the consideration, this is a force on force army combat operation, but their primary mission CSAR. So am I willing them to accept high risk, possibly get damaged, shot down doing that, and then not be able to support you guys in the fast jets? You always want to help out, but if you get killed or if you get damaged and have to, and you go down now, it's we're rescuing four more people in addition to the four people that needed rescuing in the first place. Right. Like CSAR is unique in that all need return. Whereas if you're on a strike mission and you hit your target, if it's a serious enough target, you know, some dudes might not come back and it's a mission success, but usually with the, the considerations, the, the full spectrum considerations for CSAR, you need everybody back or you just exponentially make the problem worse. In the CSAR world, Hilo world, do you guys use acceptable level of risk or do you have another, I'm sure same, it's same concept, basically, Hey, we're willing to accept a loss here for mission success or no losses. That's right. And, and that would depend on what that operation is. Right. And I think Afghanistan was very intense combat, but it was typically small arms fire up to Dishka. So 50 caliber in RPG. And if you had a, a sick jet in the zone there, you could go to a fob. There were fobs for an operating bases with fuel and ammo within 20 minutes of almost anywhere we would be. So we had a very survivable, permissive ability to escape that terminal area. Whereas if we're talking about uh, Syria area or something, uh, fuller spectrum, you if you have a sick aircraft, you got to get out of there quick because you can't beat it up in the zone and trade fire like you can if if you can just go precautionary land your bird 10 minutes later and then get to the spare aircraft and then continue the mission because you have such a logistical base in Afghanistan like we did. Yeah, well-established, completely different fight than from what's going on next door or what was going on right. next door. So you skillfully flew an approach through a channelized terrain and mountainous terrain with only feet between the rotor system and the rock face. Captain Nolan kept a solid 120-foot hover while preparing for a hoist extraction. So for me, all that sounds terrible. Spinning blades of death, (laughs) feet from your head right next to a rock wall. I would imagine the higher you are, the tougher it is for the hover and dropping it. Is that true or not? That's true. There's more power required. So aerodynamically, it costs more to keep that helicopter stable at that height. There's no ground effect. Uh, And you're trying to hit this basically loose cable, like a a super long climbing rope and get it possibly onto a roof or onto a boulder in the mountains and grab a dude who's wounded or trapped down there and pull him out. So you have to be pretty accurate with it. So at that point, the pilots, we have hover cues that we can use when we're that high and we don't have good outside references or it's really dark over the water. And we have acceleration velocity cues we can center on themselves and hover heads in on the FLIR image, kind of like a HUD tape for you guys, but a heads down display for us. And then the FE, the flight engineer, is just calling us right to back one. And they're basically flying the aircraft with their voice and they're looking at 90 degrees to our orientation. So their right is forward to them, but they have to say right for us. And 
super crew intensive calm voices matter a lot pilot not flying helping out the the pilot who's flying and everybody's voice just keeping the next one calmer and getting the job done with a lot of precision with that hover work so there a lot happens between the time i just said hey you got alerted to the fact that you're 120 feet over the area and getting ready to do a hoist extraction what is the process from getting alerted is it just hey here's the grids and go and then a jtac frequency or are you talking to c2 how does it how do you get to that spot where you're hovering so we had prepositioned to a fob called Joyce near Asadabad. And we were literally one mountain ridge from this battle. And we could just hear it as it intensified. And then when the Army Howitzer, the 105, started going off with its GPS-guided uh, 105, we knew like our missions were coming, basically. And this, was, this operation was Strong Eagle 2. And the 82nd Airborne infilled 600 troopers with Chinook lifts into a mountain valley. And they patrolled both sides down and into a Taliban stronghold and fought their way through it. And we, I think we had like 12 missions in the first day, picking up dudes with broken ankles, gunshot wounds, and making sure that those troops on the ground could continue to maneuver and not just stay in place and support the wounded soldier. And so those were our night missions. I was the co-pilot on Chalk 2, and this is my second deployment. And we had a, a team where I was with a pilot, um, good friend who had flown Huey's his first assignment and then had switched to Paypox. So he's an experienced aviator. And this was his first deployment as a uh, aircraft commander or a mission pilot. And I was trying to just support him and help him with whatever he needed. And as we're going into the zone, he, he asks, Hey, do you want to fly this approach? And it was the first approach I was going to fly for our team basically in the zone. I was like, sure. Yeah, I'll take it. I'm feeling good. And as we roll in, we had waited to get Apaches and they were rearming. And I think it was a Kiowa also. And so they'd rearmed and we'd waited in with these cat alphas, these super wounded uh, 82nd airborne troopers to roll in to support them. And as we roll in, there's a JTAC on the freak. And as we roll into the valley, flight lead, all of his flares jettison off the aircraft. And it was some electrical glitch. And oh. they just auto jettisoned. And the JTAC starts saying, hey, lead, it just had a missile shot or a shot down oh. or something. And, uh, and we're just like in chalk too, like uh, almost laughing, like what is happening? <laughs> And did you hit the jettison switch? And they're like, no, we didn't. And that was a go-no-go -go for us for manpad threats. And they're like, well, these dudes need us, so we're going to just press anyways, and we'll stay in the overhead. Uh, we're going to press in. And so, you know, I don't – I for some reason, I was chalked to co-pilot. So I had – if you have SA, you can have a lot of SA because you're making the least amount of decisions. And I was talking to the ground team, and I think their call sign was Wolverine. and. I remember asking Wolverine, say, uh, location, last known threat. And they said, accurate sniper fire 10 minutes ago. And I was like, oh, cool. Okay, that's high fidelity. And we just press in, right? Um, and as we roll in, we ask them to pop their smoke. We're on secure radios. So the Taliban probably can't hear us asking them to pop. Four different locations pop smoke. That's how intense this battle was. Those were all... U.S. soldiers' teams need an evacuation, and we went to the closest smoke, 
is a big mountain rock face, big granite rock face, kind of that looks like Eagle's Peak above the Air Force Academy. And they'd been, this squad had been engaged kind of in this little ravine, but it had a huge like 1500 foot slope that as I teardropped in, I briefed my escape route, which we always train to do. And sometimes you're, if you're complacent, you won't brief it, but I did. And I said, Hey, I'm going to teardrop in and I'll, I'll line up into the wind. I'll hover off this rock face and we'll do our hoist and get this dude out of here and escapes will be down and left. We have a little chin bubble by your foot. You can look down. And so as I teardrop in, set up this hoist, our PJ gets on the hoist and the flight engineer now is half manning his weapon. I think he probably put another PJ on the 50 cal and then he's running the hoist. And right as we get stable, PJ gets his feet on the side of the aircraft. The, the ambush that had engaged the soldiers engaged us. And we'd shot our weapons a bunch, but we'd never been shot at in our aircraft. But there was no mistaking what it was. It was basically, I don't know how many rounds went off. It was probably a PKM, so a 7.62 belt-fed machine gun. It engaged us, and it hit us five times just on the first burst. And hit retreating edge of the blade. But the, the Blackhawk is this, this war machine designed from lessons learned in Vietnam. And it's got a big titanium spar down the blade. So that bullet just hit the spar and went straight up on the blade. Didn't hurt anything. Um, one of the bullets, though, hit the right engine deck, the digital electronic control, and broke the circuit breaker in half, or uh, the uh, circuit board, and blew the wire cable off it. So the computer brain of our jet engine just got exploded and it failed to the low side oh that's convenient super convenient could have failed to the high side and and helped us hover (laughs) with a lot of power but it failed to the low side and so we got hit i look straight in and i see the all these vertical chiclets so our aircraft is vertically stacked for our instruments little lights uh the rotor should have been in the green it was in the red it was even past the 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 yellow chicks chicklets and uh you know my immediate reaction was to try to enter an auto rotation from a hover and try to get to our lift over drag max our bucket speed and we had this narrow single engine airspeed range we could fly at so i had to trade our altitude in that hover instantly to get to a survivable airspeed with one engine because you can't hover this 18,000 pound helicopter at 7,000 feet with one engine. And the, the alternative was to just crash the aircraft straight into the ground and try to cushion it as we do a power assisted vertical descent. And that didn't seem like a good idea. So the, the other really scary thing was my buddy, one of our PJs is on the hoist. So so I was going to ask is like, you got someone <laughs> attached to the hoist with his foot on the ground, right? Yeah. No, with his foot on the helicopter f- floor, ready okay. to go down, but it's unclear to me how far the hoist he's down. And so it's the philosophy one one boxcar dilemma. And it's like, well, you know, I'm going to save six dudes and maybe sacrifice one. And it's super tragic if this happens, but man, I really hope he gets in the aircraft. And so this, uh, one of my, first instructors rocky had shown me how to do a 180 auto in the 60 which was a lot different than our pilot training huey you got to just dump the nose and basically do an aileron roll and pull it around with collective to maneuver it for that type of maneuver so 
from that hover, I pointed it basically straight at the ground, did it 30 degrees nose low at least, did an aileron roll in effect, even though it's rotary wing, right? But that's kind of what it'd feel like. And then dumped the collective as I did that. And as we just plummeted towards the ground to just trade that potential energy into kinetic, I was just getting ready to crash it into the rocks and flare it to make it as survivable as possible. But then I saw the rotor was actually not stalled and we were flying at about 89, 90% NR. The generators kick off at 88 and all your anionized fails open and robs you of all your power and, and probably all your uh, electronic displays too. Yeah. Things you <laughs> so want we to default to the high side or like, you know, like yeah. it's not helping me right now. <laughs> right. Exactly. And so I, I roll out of this and I had this uh, very vivid, like out of body experience where I was just watching myself in my hand fly the rotor with the collective. And I flash back to our wedding and all my friends flying pavehawks. And I was just like, you lucky guys, like, how is this happening to me? And I just couldn't believe it. And, uh, and then I was like, Hey, we are going to crash, but I think I'm going to, you know, I was thinking about me and the crew. I think some of us are going to survive this. And then I was really worried my rifle would be bent where it was stowed next to me in the armor wing. And I wouldn't be able to defend the helicopter. And then we just kept flying and we, we come around the corner and the pilot, the, the, my buddy, uh, mission pilot takes the controls and I was lining up to roll us into a poppy field and basically crash land us. Cause my essay was just zero and he takes the controls. And I was like, at first a little like, Hey, let me finish this man. But then he took them and said, Hey, we're still flying. And I was like, Oh yeah, we're still flying. And he, I said, what happened? And he says, our engine shot out. And I, that, that was like horrifying to hear that, even though it already happened and we'd survived it. And then I asked, hey, is hey, is Yuri still alive? Is our PJ still there? And they're like, yeah, dude, he jumped in right as it happened. And for our whole crew, that's just incredible luck. And it was pretty amazing to get the crew out of that situation all in one piece. And so then we had what you call, right, like a non-dash one EP, like, there's nothing that describes the indications we were seeing, yep. but we had battle damage, you know, fire fod, frozen battle damage, shut that engine down. And then, uh, really good, um, flight leadership from my mission pilot now says, Hey, let's take it to the runway at Jalalabad and we'll roll this on. And uh, like an airplane, kind of like the, uh, Chinook pilot was talking about from the forest fires. Helicopters are another world to me, but like a roll on landing. And then it makes sense if you're underpowered, you obviously don't like, you're going to require more power to hover and sit it down. Right. But a roll on landing makes sense. Roll on landings make sense to me, but now I know <laughs> right. helicopters do that too. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we can do a roll on landing. It's a tail dragger in the Blackhawk or the Pavehawk, and then you can arrow break it super effectively. Um, but I, in my mind, my essay was still rebuilding and I was like, well, you know, we can kind of like do a single engine approach to a spot into a fob or roll it on onto a road in front of a fob and brave the landmines and try to get picked up by a team. And then he's like, we'll just take it to a runway. I was like, Oh, that's a way better idea. <laughs> I like this, but it's funny. I mean, you get wrapped, obviously you get wrapped up in the moment and having a crew is super helpful, right? Because you're going to be hopefully different bits of information. Someone else is building their essay while yours is dumped singularly focused on, just initial survival of this, this event. So 
it's kind of nice to have two people in there, assuming the person's not an SA drain. Right. No, it was, it saved our lives. We had two pilots, two special mission aviators, and then two or three PJs. And I remember the PJs telling me, they said, the only call we got out of the aircraft too was contact, contact, contact from one of the PJs. Flight lead heard us and was like, why are they flying down the valley? Because it's so hard daytime to see point of origin. Uh, you have to literally be staring as it as they shoot at you or you can't catch it. And so they bravely followed us expecting to maybe flame out and have to auto-rotate coming into Jalalabad to be our chase ship. And we tried to get some Apaches to follow us, but they were busy just slaying people up in the mountain there and were pretty focused on that. And so we self-supported our own escape. And then we flew down the Konar River at, at about you know 75 feet, talking through how we do a low-altitude auto if we took a kite or more battle damage or birds into the good engine trying to like land on a sandbar or the beach or something and defend ourselves till a MRAP could get to us. But we got to Jalalabad there, but back to the PJs, they said, Hey, when we first got hit, we're pretty sure we were going to die. Then we were pretty sure we were going to live. Then flying down the river. When you started talking about us, like swimming out of the helicopter, if we had to auto it, we were pretty sure we were going to die again. <laughs> it's a roller coaster <laughs> of emotions. Yes, dude, I can't, I can't imagine. I imagine daytime or even, I don't, I don't know what the insurgents were doing at that time, if they were using tracers or not. But like you said, daytime, finding a point of origin where that stuff's coming from. You're basically looking for dust kicking up, which in the mountains, everything is tan and green. Probably a pretty low probability that you're actually going to see where that port and origin came from. It's even surprisingly low probability. Even if you know all that, you think, hey, I'm in a helicopter in the overhead I'm looking at my dudes, the, your chalk two or your flight lead. I know I can see if they get engaged. You really can't. Like you can if you're lucky and you just are looking right at that spot as it happens. But like you said, uh, I can't recall if there were tracers that day, but it's it's just phenomenally difficult, even at a hundred feet, to spot that. Let alone in a fast jet, spotting that. Yeah, no, I mean, there's no way you unless you have tracer rounds and obviously it's gonna be bigger stuff shooting at faster jets, but nighttime with the targeting pod best case scenario you're going to see a hot spot maybe looking out with like mvgs if they're shooting tracers or something like that you'd be able to pick it up but nothing of use especially in that terrain with you know steep mountains and things like that in the fast jet you're not going to have total view the entire time as you're up there in the orbit so right completely completely different world and to me it's phenomenal uh what you guys do because you're, you're risking it going in there, definitely hanging it out and in the hover and just a sitting target. And I can imagine every insurgent in the world would love nothing more than to shoot down a U.S. helicopter or any helicopter for that matter. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, it's very much their goal in those situations is a SAR trap or some sort of ambush for the rescue vehicle when we get there. You mentioned you guys are about 7,000 feet uh, yeah. up in the mountains. So helicopter-wise... That's probably getting pretty close to max performing it, depending on your fuel weight and how many bodies you got in there, right? I know I know it can go higher, but can you talk me through some of the challenges of flying around at that altitude and that terrain? Right. So flying around that terrain, you want to use the winds to your advantage, right? So on the updrafts there, watch out for demarcation lines where you get a lot of turbulence coming off the ridges. But with our power calcs, we're running on our CDU, 
and with our flight engineer, how much it'll take to hover and with fuel as close as it was, we would fuel dump to about 20 minutes of usable gas every pickup in that situation. So we would just fly max fuel. And then once we knew what the pickup was like, we would dump to 20 minutes of gas and commit to the zone and try to get those dudes out. And so you were like both committed threat wise to getting them out and injury wise for them. And then you only had like 10 minutes of gas with a bingo factored in to get to your base to refuel. So we were being pretty precise with the fuel dumps and occasionally could get a rescue tanker or an AFSOC tanker to give us some gas. But at those altitudes, that's hard to get them off their mission set unless they're just supporting us for a CSAR type mission. It completely different world than what I'm used to. And it's like phenomenal just to hear that story. I would like to shift gears to another distinguished flying cross that you received, which was just what about a month later? That's right. Yeah. So yeah, about 25 days later or whatever. Afterburn podcast is a proud supporter of guns gear and Memorial foundation helping our veterans and their families when they need it most. To learn more, visit gunsgarin.com slash rain. 